You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, everyone. You're listening to Ocean Currents here on KWMR a show where we talk about the blue part of our planet, the ocean. We talk about science, natural history, discoveries, conservation, policy, and ways for us land-based folks to get more involved. My name is Jennifer Stock, and I bring this show to you through NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of three special ocean places off the coast of Point Reyes. This show is part of the West Marin Matters series, where every Monday at 1 you can tune in to learn something about our local environment or economy. And Mondays, the first Monday of every month is the ocean. So here we are on June 6th, and it's still raining. It's quite chilly, and we have had quite a year in weather events. In conversation with friends and family, it's often come up, is this related to climate change? And who knows? We'll discuss that a little bit today with my guest. We'll explore a very important ocean literacy principle, which is how does the ocean influence our weather? If you happen to live far away from the coast or any con- on any continent, this interconnection between weather and the ocean impacts everyone, no matter where you live. So the Earth planet is only habitable because of our atmosphere and ocean. So today we're really going to dive in and talk about how these two things interact. We'll be talking with Dave Reynolds, a chief meteorologist for the National Weather Service Forecast Office in Monterey with us live on the air. So stay with us and we will be back to talk a little bit about how the ocean and weather interact. the sounds you probably don't expect to hear in late May and June here in the Bay Area of California, but yet we are all experiencing quite a bit of rain still, and uh, hopefully we'll talk with Dave a little bit about this. So, uh, welcome back. You're listening to Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock, and my guest today is Dave Reynolds, who is the Chief Meteorologist for the National Weather Service's Forecast Office in Monterey. That provides forecasts, watches, and warnings for the greater San Francisco and Monterey Bay area, including the forecast that KWMR provides its listeners every single day. The National Weather Service is part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, which is within the Department of Commerce. They're kind of an uncle agency to the National Marine Sanctuary Program that I work for. David's primary interest is in quantitative precipitation forecasting, and in climate change impacts in California. He has multiple degrees in atmospheric sciences, is a fellow of the American Meteorological Society, and has received multiple honorary awards through NOAA for his work with atmospheric sciences. David is a recent contributor to the recent report, Climate Change Impacts, that Gulf of the Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries worked on that details the expected physical, environmental, and biological changes we expect with climate change in our local environment. So we'll be talking a little bit about that today as well. So, David, welcome. You are live on the air. Welcome to Ocean Currents. Thanks, Jennifer. Nice to be here. So uh, we are sitting here in a cloud in Point Reyes. I'm wondering what it's like in Monterey. 
Well, Monterey was sunny uh, <laughs> up until about the last uh, 30 minutes, and then this cloud bank that's uh, been moving south uh, off the coast just started moving in here. Interesting. It's quite, it's quite humid. So I imagine the weather this year has kept you on your toes as a meteorologist. Would you characterize this winter and spring as odd weather from your years of forecasting? Well, I'm not sure it's really that odd, honestly. Um, you know, years, you know, the, uh, the normals are always made up of these extremes, one way or the other, it seems. So either dry years or wet years, but uh, we are very rarely seem to have a climatological normal year. I think the uh, what may seem to be uh, the oddity this year is that we keep getting these frontal systems that come through even into early June, producing cooler weather and chances of precipitation or some precipitation, and this just keeps going and going. And I think that uh, is, a, if anything, that's that may be somewhat unusual. So, do you have an idea? I'm in terms of why we are receiving this weather and that snow in the Sierras, tornadoes in California, uh, rain into June. It may not be um, abnormal, but it's definitely not something we're used to. So what are some of the physical reasons that this is created? Well, I think what we're seeing is uh, what we call a somewhat of a blocking pattern. That is the, uh, the long wave troughs and ridges that guide our storm systems out throughout the northern hemisphere of the globe have been relatively parked in their in their positions for probably six, eight weeks. And uh, in this particular case, we have a, a ridge of high pressure that's backed off well off the coast into uh, the central Pacific, and that has allowed these uh, storm systems to drop down through California, actually intensify as they get near the Rocky Mountains, and uh, produce uh, all of this uh, severe weather that you've heard about in the Midwest with these tornado outbreaks. It's also added to the rainfall in the upper Mississippi and Ohio valleys, which has caused this record flooding in the Mississippi. And uh, as we've actually gone and progressed through the, sp- through the late spring, this pattern is, is somewhat retrograded, meaning it's moved back to the west. Normally our storms move from west to east. What we've seen over the last couple of weeks is this pattern is sort of backed up to the west, and that's uh, allowed these storms to drop right down the coast. And so this one we had this weekend was a a rather deep storm that dropped right off Cal- right off California, in fact, right off Monterey, producing upwards of uh, seven inches of rain in the in our mountains south of Monterey here over the weekend. Wow, that's, which is very unusual. That's quite a bit. Yes. So, um, in terms of these fronts and these systems, what are some factors that influence them? Is it temperature in the air? Temperature in the ocean? Um, northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere, what are some of the conditions that are created? Because I imagine it's quite a bit of interaction between the atmosphere and the ocean. Yes, there is. In fact, uh, I would say a lot of uh, what controls the weather, especially in California, can be tied back to uh, the uh, sea surface temperatures and what effects that has on uh, deep tropical thunderstorms. And so this past winter we've had a what was categorized as a strong La Nina, which is the... Uh, phase of this sea surface temperatures that is cold in the central and eastern Pacific rather than warm. Many people are probably more familiar with El Nino uh, in California. That's where we have warmer than normal waters in the Pacific. This past year we had very cold waters in the central and eastern Pacific called La Nina, just the opposite of El Nino. And that pushes these deep tropical thunderstorms much further to the west in the far western Pacific Ocean near Asia, and in fact, even as far 
uh, west as the Indian Ocean. And what this tends to do is force the jet stream into a certain pattern. And so I think what what we saw this past winter is this ridge of high pressure that was off the well off the west coast to allow these colder storms to come in to California and build up this record or near I shouldn't say record but it's a near record snowpack in the Sierra Nevadas because it was so cold and the freezing levels were down and kept our temperatures low and actually gave us more than usual precipitation for this time of year and this pattern just has lingered into uh, the late spring. So you you think it's partially La Nina conditions this cold water? Yes, I think the uh, the driver of this is the uh, the strong La Nina that we had uh, this past winter. Mm-hmm. So even though the uh, if one were to look at sea surface temperatures right now in the tropical Pacific, they would actually see an anomalous warm tongue of of sea surface temperatures coming off of South America and starting to extend out into the uh, Pacific Ocean near the tropics. So we've actually started to change the sign of this. Uh, ENSO effect, as it's called, we're, we're actually flipping from a colder than normal to slightly warmer than normal. But the but the atmosphere has a memory of what occurred over the winter time, and so it's not it's not realizing those warm temperatures yet. It's still being driven by the by the pattern that was set up by these colder than normal temperatures. And so that can linger until the sun starts moving north in the northern hemisphere, and it's going to shove the jet stream mm. farther north, and we will see summer. So. We so will. I think we won't see it. We will see it, and it'll probably be by the end of this week. All right. We're going to see much warmer temperatures, and think that uh, gee, maybe we'll get back to something that looks like normal. Oh, that's exciting. Yes. It's it's funny as a, a a backyard gardener, a lot of the weather, I what's going on in my garden kind of indicates somewhat of the weather. I'm sure that is the same for a lot of other gardeners out here. We didn't have a good year with tomatoes last year. It was really cold, and <laughs> right. things are had, having a tough time getting started. I'm just hoping they hold on right now till we do get those warm temperatures. You know, when you were just talking about the La Nina and the, the memory of the air temperature and, and whatnot, something I read earlier today was about something called the negative Arctic oscillation, some big words here for mm-hmm. some of us that are not familiar with weather terms. Right. But this was really interesting to me. It said that a typical condition is a positive Arctic oscillation, but when it's negative, that means Arctic temperatures and weather can come down to the United States and Europe. But it, re- it said that it flipped so that we were back in positive conditions. And so I'm just curious where, where this specific weather pattern or atmospheric condition affects our weather. They certainly can. Um, as I said, I tend to look, and, and a lot of us in forecasting tend to look at what's going on in the tropics, but there's also mid-latitude features. These are, these are features that occur in the, uh, normally the mid-latitudes or the, or the northern latitudes that uh, can control our weather and actually can be stronger than the forcing that can occur from the, from the tropics. And so in a negative uh, AO, as we call it, Arctic Oscillation, that, that's basically just reflecting the fact that uh, ridges and troughs have sort of, of changed their normal climatological location. And so this, so this ridge that normally sits near the west coast, that also backs off into the middle of the Pacific and allows the colder air to come down into the continents. And so if you get the La Nina pattern to get in phase with the Arctic Oscillation, you can have really cold temperatures and persistent type of weather for weeks and weeks. And so I think we've seen a little bit of that this past winter where the two of these uh, 
processes came into phase with each other and just uh, aggravated the, the pattern that we were in. And so a lot of times there's arguments about is it, the, is it these mid, mid or northern latitude features that are driving our weather or is it the tropics? And sometimes it's very difficult for us to differentiate on a given day as to which one is the driver. For those just tuning in, you're listening to Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock, and I'm talking with Dave Reynolds from the National Weather Service, and we're talking about the interaction of the ocean and weather and, and uh, how they affect each other. In terms of all this forecasting, this is an incredible amount of science based on a lot of data, and I'm curious if you could just describe what what are you consulting to be following these atmospheric patterns? These are pretty much invisible for those of us in one location, but... What can you describe some of the technology and the data that you use, and is this something that other people can see so they can get an idea of these pictures? What we uh, normally use for our forecast, and anything beyond about six or twelve hours, is uh, computer models, which we have a bevy of computer models to look at. So we have something called the National Center for Environmental Prediction, ncep.noaa.gov. So if you were to go to that website and you were to click on their computer models, you could see the computer models that our uh, NOAA agency runs for us. Some are global models. Some are regional models. The global models cover, obviously, the whole globe, and they are run out to 15 days into the future. And uh, we can look at these models and look at the patterns that they're generating, look at the precipitation, look at the winds, and we tend to go with the forecast of these models since we've been looking at them for years and we understand how they operate and we understand some of their biases, but it's really these computer models that we that we focus on uh, quite a bit. And this is all based on satellite data? Yes. Yeah, so what goes into these computer models? Um, lots of surface observations, lots of what we call weather balloon observations. These are these weather balloons that are launched uh, all over the globe by all countries uh, that to take a weather balloon, have a little instrument package on it. They launch it twice a day. And to those observations of the vertical temperature and winds and moisture profile gets fed into these computers. But what's really revolutionized and improved our computer modeling over the last 15 years or so is satellite information. Mm-hmm. And this is satellite information, not from the ones you'd normally see on TV that show, you know, California and give an animated loop of, of uh clouds and precipitation, these are polar orbiters. That means they they come over the same location on Earth maybe twice a day. But it's those instruments on those polar orbiters that really have provided so much more information over the oceans where we had no data before that has really improved our capability of, of forecasting out, you know, five to seven days from where we, before, you know, maybe 15 years ago, we had virtually little skill in a seven-day forecast. Now, our five- or seven-day forecast is as good as our three-day forecast was, say, 15, 20 years ago. Interesting. That's amazing. The technology has improved the forecast that much. What is the rate of accuracy in terms of a forecast? Some people don't trust the weatherman right. very much, but what is the actual accuracy rate? Since About 80 to 85 percent. That's pretty good. It is. I think what people you know, focus on is the forecaster said it was going to rain and it didn't rain. I said it was going to rain at 2 o'clock this afternoon and it was sunny. <laughs> the details you know, are, are difficult, but to say it's going to rain on Saturday, which I think we were forecasting as early as Monday of last week for this past weekend, 
But to get the specifics right, well, did it rain all afternoon? Could I have planned something in the afternoon? You know, we can't get that specific five to five days out. But knowing it was going to rain Saturday, I think we were right on. Yeah, well, I was actually here in, in the studio last week and uh, reading the weather warning. <clears throat> I had a feeling that I should be planning different plans for the weekend. Right. So, excuse me. Um, going back to some of these anomalies like La Nina and El Nino, um, there's also something called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. And I, that's something I'm just not that familiar with as a casual uh, oceanographer in terms of what I know. And I'm wondering if you can explain this a little bit, how it relates to our ocean conditions here in the, the California current on the, off the coast here and how it also affects weather. Okay. Well, uh, the PDO, as we call it, we uh, like to use acronyms in NOAA. <laughs> the Pacific Decadal Oscillation is, is really uh, what some might describe it as uh, in the cold phase of the, or the negative phase of the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, you tend to get more La Nina-type patterns to set up, which is the, cold, the colder waters in the tropics. And during the positive phase of the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, you get more El Ninos or the warmer uh, waters in the tropical Pacific. And so these tend to be, you know, the trend in, in terms of getting more La Ninas or more El Ninos tends to, tends to be on a 10, 20, 30-year time frame. And so if you look back at the records of, of the frequency of El Nino and La Nina, you will see that from about 1948 to about 1978, we were in the negative phase of the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. And from about 78 to about 98, we were in the positive phase of the PDO, and we've now flipped back over into the negative phase of the PDO. And really what that means is for our weather in California is we tend to get colder waters along the California coast. The strong current that's driven from the Alaska current down the coast is what's driving that and keeps those waters quite cool. And it, it also tends to have weather patterns that are much more meridional meaning that we have very high amplitude in the jet stream during these winters, whereas in the El Nino years, we tend to get a straight shot of of jet stream right from Japan, right across the Pacific, what we call more zonal flow. So you might expect less extremes in temperatures uh, during the warm phase of the PDO and more extremes of temperatures in in the negative phase of the PDO. So that's just a real simple simple idea of, of how it may affect our weather in California. really influences La Nina and El Nino, which is always flipping around. And also, you know, one of the things that I, has typically been known is La Nina usually means wet weather, or usually it means drier weather. Right. And this year we've seen more wet weather. So is it, or is our understanding of what La Nina is and El Nino changing as our global temperatures are changing? Well, I think uh, you have to put El Nino and La Nina into uh, characterize them as to their strength. And what we see is that the the main signals from, in terms of precipitation in California, that come from uh, El Nino is in the strong El Ninos. If you have a weak to moderate El Nino, the signal is pretty weak in terms of precipitation on an annual basis in California. We've seen some some of the driest years on record in California when we've had a weak to moderate El Nino. And when you start getting these very strong ENSO cases, meaning either strong El Nino or strong La Nina, of which this last winter was one of, one of if not the strongest La Nina we've seen in 50 years, 
those tend to, to stand out and tend to produce anomalous weather. The strong El Nino certainly produced some of the wettest winters we get, but this strong La Nina that we had, we had another one in 55, which produced one of the most devastating floods in California history, December 55, was it was the next strongest, if not the strongest, La Nina. And that was extremely wet winter in California. And this, this past winter with a very strong La Nina also produced very high precipitation and very high snowpack. So it's, it's these really, really strong ones that tend to drive our perception of wet uh, wetness. And uh, when you start getting into the weaker ones, the signal, it's, it's actually pretty difficult to resolve a strong signal out of the weaker ones. Mm-hmm. What are the, is it the El Nino, La Nina, and the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, are they fairly predictable in terms of when they will occur? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Climate all models a are starting to, to see a signal. Uh, you know, we can... Uh, we can start to see a trend in our climate models now. They're getting good enough where we've now coupled, one of the big things we've done now is couple the ocean with the atmosphere. Before we, we couldn't really have the computer resources or the, or the know-how to couple in the same model the oceans, the ocean currents, and everything that goes on in the oceans with the atmosphere. And over the last five to ten years, we've actually been able to put all that physics in one model. And that's really given us uh, the hope of trying to forecast, you know, what the signal of ENSO is going to be in the next year. Or, you know, we're still sort of in the, the baby steps of that, but uh, there is some some capability to do that. But I would not say it's it's uh, really strong right at the moment. Mm-hmm. So where are we at right now? It's June 6th, and so where are you seeing the next few weeks in terms of La Nina, El Nino, and our weather here in the Bay Area. Well, I think the uh, we, as I said, we've turned the corner from a cold phase to somewhat neutral. We really haven't gone into an El Nino type phase, but we've certainly taken gone away from the cold waters out in the tropical Pacific to near neutral. And so, the forecast right now is for a neutral winter, meaning we're not going to have warmer than normal waters or colder than normal waters, but we're going to be near neutral in the tropics. And so. The tropical drivers are, are not going to be these large-scale sea surface temperatures out in the central and eastern Pacific. There'll have to be other other mechanisms to drive our weather. So I think what we're going to see is the weather patterns get more typical here over the next, uh, in fact, starting this week. And I think we'll be back into a normal type of regime of night and morning low clouds at the coast and hot inland All right. for the rest of the summer. You heard it here, folks, from Dave Reynolds yourself. The forecast was looking up. Um, how about in the ocean conditions, though? Um, last year, it was incredible. We had super cold temperatures and lots and lots of upwelling and krill and huge amounts of whales in the area, humpback whales and blue whales. And right. um, what's the prediction for this summer in terms of the ocean conditions? Well, I was looking at the upwelling index, which is calculated by our uh, fisheries group here in uh Pacific Grove, actually. Mm-hmm. They've been looking at this, uh, tracking this sort of thing, because it does have an impact on fisheries uh, in terms of the krill and, and how productive the uh, the ocean is. And because we've had these weather transient weather patterns, the uh, the upwelling has sort of started getting going, and then it stops because the weather pattern comes through and it reverses the northwest flow that we normally have mm-hmm. starting in April to a southerly flow. And so it breaks down the uh, 
what we call the spring transition. So it really hasn't gotten gotten going uh, real well this this spring. So really, the uh, what I look at the index is is pretty neutral right now. It's almost uh, you know it's not above normal like we saw the last two uh, springs. It's it's close to normal. And because we've had colder waters than normal because of the negative phase of the specific decadal oscillation, that's helped. So, you know, just having colder waters helps the, uh, helps the krill. But we're not getting a real driver from the strong northwest winds that normally develop in the spring because the, the weather patterns have just been uh, too transient to, to get it going. But I think we'll start to see that in, improve here uh, very shortly. Well, we have observed some very strong winds in the last few weeks, extremely strong north to south winds, and it seems that those have been pretty regular in the springtime. They seem to be increasing, and I'm curious, what do you, what do you think? And those winds you don't think are up, affecting the upwelling? Well, as I said, yes, they've come and gone. They, okay. We've had, we've, we've had, yes, I would agree with you, we've had very strong north north to south winds after one of these fronts go by that the the high pressure builds in, and we get very strong northerly winds, and it helps you up welling. But then we've had another front come through, and they kind of die off, and we get a south south to southwest flow for a couple of days, and then mm. we get a northwest flow. Whereas okay. once, and normally what happens is the storm track will recede to our north starting in April, late April, and then May, we don't see, climatologically, we don't see fronts coming through here very often, so that northwest wind pretty much blows every single day. Mm-hmm. And you need that sort of persistent northwest wind to get that real upwelling going and, and make it very, very productive. So, yes, we've had bursts of these northwest winds, uh, but they're not continuous like we like we normally would like to see for real strong upwelling and real strong spring transition. So it's been about normal. Okay, so we'll have to see what happens in the coming weeks. These weather systems have kind of prevented the upwelling from really get, getting going. Well, Dave, we are going to uh, take a quick break here, and I hope you'll just stay on the line, and we'll bring you back on live in just a minute. And in the second half, I'd like to talk a little bit more about climate change and how climate change is going to impact our our weather conditions. And I know you've been very interested in that and have participated a lot in making some educated guesses as to what is about to happen to us in the next decade or so. So please stay on the line, Dave. Thank you. I will do it. Those of you just tuning in, this is Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock, and we are talking about the interaction between the ocean and weather with Dave Reynolds from the National Weather Service in Monterey. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about how climate change may be impacting weather patterns on the horizon as we are moving towards new atmospheric and ocean conditions. Please stay with us. We're back. You're tuned to Ocean Currents on KWMR. And today I'm talking with Dave Reynolds from the National Weather Service. And we're talking about weather and how the ocean influences our weather, um, specifically here in California, but of course globally as well. And Dave, welcome back. I wanted to take some time to talk about climate change. I know this is an interest of yours in terms of how climate change could impact our weather. And you were a contributor to the Climate Impacts Report recently with the sanctuaries here. 
And going through the report, it's, it seems like there's some very clear ideas of what could happen um, on the horizon with, with temperatures. Um, according to the San Francisco Tidal Gauge, 1858 to 2000, <clears throat> there was an increase in intense winter storms since 1950, as well as observed increase in the largest waves. Um, new wind speeds that are going to increase upwelling, uh, ocean acidification on the horizon. How about the weather in terms of what can we expect in terms of different weather patterns as we enter climate change on the horizon? Well, our, you know, as you said, these are educated guesses because we're, we're just going by uh, what we've seen in the past and what we understand how the atmosphere works in California, especially uh, in the summertime. Um, so one of the things we we speculated on was the fact that, as in fact, we've actually started to see this since about the late 70s, and that is during the summer months as the interior starts to warm due to uh, climate change and global warming, the the onshore flow will increase because we re- replace that warm, hot air in the valley that's rising rapidly like a chimney with cool marine air. And so the coastal areas, we've actually seen a decrease in their summertime temperatures, the max temperatures during the summertime, because this ocean breeze has uh, increased and produced more uh, you know, coastal onshore flow uh, right near the coast. And so that we speculate as as the uh, temperatures get warmer and warmer over the next uh, 10 to 30 years or so, that uh, that trend may continue. And that may also produce more stratus in the uh, coastal areas uh, because of the strong upwelling that would occur due to this uh, persistent northwest wind as we talked about before the break. We'd actually see that uh, be more persistent because the driver of that is the hot uh, interior low pressure that develops because of the heat with the Pacific high pressure that sits off the off the west coast all summer and that drives this pressure gradient out of the north and keeps the winds blowing and so more upwelling causes more stratus and uh, more stratus would uh, help keep our temperatures down as we saw last summer so last summer may be more typical than we'd like to think about for the next uh, you know 20 30 40 years interesting how about, um, I've read about drier, dry years and wetter, wet years. Right. How does that work? Well, we think, you know, one of the things that uh, may occur is as the atmosphere warms globally, the jet stream is going to move further north. And so in those cases where we don't have a strong perturbation, let's say from an El Nino or La Nina, a real strong El Nino or La Nina, the jet stream may tend to be further north than uh, it normally has been over the past thousands of years, let's say, because we're just going to be in a much warmer environment. So that's going to change where the jet stream resides. And so those dry years that we've had in the past may be even even drier because we're just not going to get the few storms that we do get during a dry year. May, we may not even get those. So there may be a possibility that the driest years we've had in the past would be even drier because we're not even getting uh, a few storms to help add to the snowpack or add to the water supply. And then in the, uh, the opposite of that would be because the atmosphere holds more moisture when it's warmer and because the sea surface temperatures in the tropics are going to be warmer, the drivers that drive, you know, it's not the sea surface temperatures per se that drives our weather, but it's the thunderstorms, these large complexes of thunderstorms that develop over the tropics that drive the jet stream, that drive the storms into California. And there's a certain threshold of about... Uh, 
83, 85 degrees Fahrenheit. Once the sea surface temperatures rise above that, they generate these large thunderstorms. And if you can imagine if we raise the sea surface temperatures just a few degrees Fahrenheit, we could uh, tip the scales into some larger areas of these deep thunderstorms. And then uh, as this jet stream is, is shifted south because of the forcing of these thunderstorms, the air is going to hold more moisture. As those jet streams come into California with higher moisture content, we could see bigger rains and thus bigger floods. So there's a lot of land planning that needs to happen on the coast and on the edgy edges. I mean, just like we're hearing in Missouri right now, the river and all these communities and the entire economy is affected by it. Absolutely. And California is so uh, sensitive to our winter snowpack supply. And uh, if you can imagine that the freezing level, because the atmosphere is warmer, is going to produce more rain higher up on the uh, Sierra Nevada, let's say, than it does now, that's going to produce runoff in the wintertime that normally resides as snowpack until the spring. Mm -hmm. So our reservoirs, instead of being able to store that in the spring, that water's coming down in the in the uh, in the wintertime, and because we may have heavier rains in the, in the late winter, early spring, we can't store it at that time. We have to let it go and to keep our reservoirs for flood protection. And so mm -hmm. we just won't have as much water in the springtime, uh, you know, say climatologically, in a warmer climate over the next 30 to 50 years would certainly impact the water supply for California. So how do you feel agencies that manage our water supply and these um, the edges of rivers and estuaries, how are they handling this information that we're starting to think about in terms of the future? Well, I think from a, from a uh, say, a water supply or a flood management situation, I think we are starting to think about, you know, how are we going to keep that water, you know, how are we going to store that water when we need it and mm -hmm. so we have it during uh, the growing season in the summertime? And, and uh, you know, that becomes a, a difficult question environmentally because we have to... Uh, think about more uh, reservoirs or more storage areas. Either you have to pump it back into the ground for moisture, you know, soil recharge or uh, build more uh, reservoirs or off-site, offline storage areas to, to keep the water that's coming down during the wintertime. I think the other thing is if you're a, uh, in an estuary or something like that, uh, you may see much higher flows if we get one of these very heavy rainstorms, which could, uh, you know, cause quite a bit of damage due to very high flows and a lot of sedimentation coming down, or just the opposite. We may go, we could go several years without very high flows at all. So the fisheries could be affected by the fact that we just don't have the flows you need during the springtime when the uh, salmon are trying to come back upstream. Mm -hmm. So you have to manage those reservoirs so that you have the water and the water temperature is kept at a certain temperature so that those salmonoids can get back upstream without uh, dying due to either hot water or no water. So it's a very complex problem. It's extremely dynamic. That's the word that just keeps coming through my head as we're talking about the ocean and the atmosphere and the interactions and all these different phenomena happening and so much that we don't know. It's just very dynamic. This science is extremely active, and I, I hope that we'll have more scientists coming into the field to be working on these topics because they are so important for the economy and for our communities for sustaining. So, Yeah, I think the, one of the real helpful things that uh, young scientists can think about is to improve our regional climate models. You know, right now our climate models are so coarse that uh, they have a hard time picking up on what the precipitation rainfall may be in California specifically and what specifically may happen in certain important locations, say, in Northern California versus Southern California. We just don't have the resolution, but 
time as computers get better and we get uh, better science put into those climate forecasts, uh, we might have a much better handle on what the impacts will be on a regional basis. Mm-hmm. So um, for those just tuning in, I'm Jennifer Stock. This is Ocean Currents, and I've been talking with Dave Reynolds from the National Weather Service about our weather and how the ocean and the weather are um, interacting. And Dave, I we have about five more minutes left. Um, one thing we haven't touched on too much is the biological aspect that somewhat the the second half of after all this oceanography and atmospheric science plays out is the biological reaction. And it seems that for the upwelling that may we may get more of with these additional winds, some of us might think, well, that's a great thing because upwelling's good. It's great for the food web. But what are some of the downsides of that in terms of uh, the biological food web? Well, I, I'm not an expert on the biology of fisheries. I uh, I know that the upwelling is good, but you know, if it's say salmon, uh, even if you have a large uh, returning population, they have to have stream flow and rivers that are a certain temperature so they can make it back to their spawning locations. And I think one of the challenges is going to be which is which has really been the most important driver for our salmon population. We know it's decreased over the last couple of years. It seems to be picking back up. But was that a combination of dry winters and, and poor stream flow, or was that the lack of upwelling we had in 2005 and 2006? Again, it's a, it, that is a complicated, complicated issue, to say the least. Um, but it, it's hard for me to speculate because mm-hmm. I'm a, an atmospheric science type of guy, not the not the biologist in the ocean. So I'll, I'll probably leave that up to a, another guest someday. Well, we've talked about that actually in previous shows with um, Jean Largier. Um, he was also on our show talking okay. a little bit about this climate report. But the one thing that just comes to mind is I don't think people really realize that with this excess, a lot of extra upwelling is that it'll be bringing up potentially more acidic waters, waters mm-hmm. that has been have been sitting further down on the seafloor where there's more carbon dioxide. The ocean is a big sink for all this carbon dioxide we've been putting into the atmosphere, and um, it may come up and and be biting us on the food web. Yeah, there is another. uh, You can get uh, too much oxygen because if you get too much of this uh, growth in in, uh, biota, it can sink to the bottom and and, uh, consume all the oxygen. And so you you get too much oxygen, and uh, then there's then there's not at all because it's consumed by the rotting plant, and then uh, you can get toxicity to the to the fish, if you, mm-hmm. especially if you get a real burst of upwelling, lots of uh, lots of production, and then that all uh, dies off and sinks to the bottom. And uh, I know that's an impact that can occur, mm-hmm. especially up in Oregon and Washington. They have that quite often. Is that hypoxic? Yes, I hypoxic think that's the term. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. What are some other uh, what are some other things you'd like to share in terms of just these last few minutes in terms of the sciences here and as citizens that are paying attention to the weather and keeping an eye on things? Okay. Are there any last recommendations you have for us? Or well, one of the things people might have heard over the past couple of years that we've started to discuss in terms of weather impacts that is driven by sea surface temperatures and tropical convection is something called the Madden-Julian oscillation, mm-hmm. which is something that occurs. Uh, in the tropics, starts out in the Indian Ocean and moves uh, east into the tropical Pacific. But it's on an intra-annual basis, meaning it, have, it has a cycle of about 30 to 45 days. And it's most important during these neutral winters, meaning we don't have a strong El Nino or strong La Nina, but we have neutral conditions, which we're expecting this coming winter. And this MJO, you can think of it as like a, like a mini El Nino. It, it's strong convection that develops, but it moves out 
as a disturbance out from the Indian Ocean and out into the Western Pacific, then out towards the Central Pacific. It can enhance the jet stream just like El Nino does and, and produce these strong rivers of very high moisture content into California. We call them atmospheric rivers. And these atmospheric rivers are what produce most of the flooding in California. So if we do have a, a sort of a neutral winter coming up, uh, people should pay attention to our discussions. Or when we start mentioning something like the Madden-Julian Oscillation, they should sort of perk their ears up because it may mean that uh, we could be looking at a fairly major wet storm uh, which produced some of our worst flooding. So it's just something to think about. Uh, they do occur during these neutral years, and uh, we appear to be going into one of those types of years. Thank you, David. That's actually very important to think about as we've just had a pretty wet winter here and we may have more coming up in, a, in just a couple months as we head into the winter. Well, we're in the summer now. we got a, a ways to Enjoy go. Enjoy the summer. <laughs> <laughs> we've got to figure out how to store this extra water is what we need to do. Right. Thank you so much, David. This has been so interesting and it makes me realize how much I didn't know about atmospheric sciences and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to explain some of these phenomena to us and and predict our weather. All right. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks again. Bye-bye. That was David Reynolds from the National Weather Service, part of NOAA, and the National Weather Service forecasts the weather that we look to every day to find out what to wear and do I need my umbrella. Um, David's been talking a little bit about these interactions between the atmosphere and the ocean and the main thing I'm taking away here is just the incredible dynamics of it all and how interconnected we are as a planet with living on land and receiving the effects of weather that are so tied to our atmosphere and sea conditions as well. We didn't really touch too much on the biological aspects of that, but um, we have talked about some of that on past shows and, and we will again. We're going to take a quick break here, and when I come back, I have some other announcements to share with you. Thanks for staying with us. All right, you've been tuning in to Ocean Currents here on KWMR. We've been talking about the ocean and the atmosphere and our weather um, I thought I'd share with you a couple websites that um, have some great information regarding this topic. Um, one thing I found that I didn't even know existed before but is really nice source of information for all things water. It's called waterencyclopedia.com. And if you go on that website, you can go through a series of topics regarding water and ocean. And you can type in, I typed in ocean weather and Weather Ocean, and so many great things came up with wonderful references um, as to where the information came from. That's waterencyclopedia.com. Of, co- of course, there's the NOAA website that the National Weather Service is part of, www.noaa.gov. And David mentioned the um, National Climate Environment, or uh, the NCEP noaa.gov. I can't remember what that stands for, but Environmental Predictions. Um, he was talking about how they get a lot of their data from that website in terms of predicting the, in the uh, weather that we have, ncep.noaa.gov. And also the last part is the climate change work. The climate change impacts report that I referenced earlier is a really great source of information of what we're potentially expecting here on the horizon. I've brought this up on past shows, and we've had John Largier and 
um, some others talk a little bit about some of that some of the findings in this report, but it's really nice to read all the different things that we could potentially be planning for here. And the National Marine Sanctuaries, I know, are taking it as to how are we going to manage these special marine protected areas with climate change and looking at adaptive management and what does that mean and how do we mitigate all the other human-caused threats to the ocean while we have this large-scale climate change event coming on as well. Very, very complex. So I encourage you to look at that. You can get it off of either the Cordell Bank or Farallon's websites, cordellbank.noaa.gov or farallons.noaa.gov. And it's almost like a, a good textbook. So if you're interested in learning more about that, definitely check it out. Let's see. we got some other things happening. This week, the Cordell Bank Sanctuary Advisory Council has a meeting at the Red Barn at Point Reyes National Seashore. 9.30 to 2 p.m. The Sanctuary Advisory Council is made up of volunteers representing different constituencies to help advise the sanctuary on what to do. Gulf of the Fairlands has an advisory council as well. And we have people from conservation, research, the maritime industry, education, uh, public at large. A couple uh, local residents here are part of both of these councils. And they are always open to the public. So you're welcome to come and learn more. Um, this coming meeting There'll be an update from the Vessel Working Group that is looking at uh, issues with big vessels coming in and out of the sanctuaries and how to mitigate impacts with large mammals or oil spills and whatnot. So that's going to be a a good report out there. You can get more information on the agenda there and find out more at our website, cordellbank.noaa.gov. And kind of a fun thing for those of you that are wildlife enthusiasts, um, we are at a, a, a period where the ocean conditions are changing, and this time of year is when a lot of pelagic seabirds start making their way to this part of the Pacific because of the upwelling that we have here, all this really good food. And some scientists from Oikonos Ecosystem Knowledge, a nonprofit, and the USGS have been part of a pink-footed shearwater tagging project. And these beautiful birds that are completely pelagic, they only come to land to breed, um, come up from Chile, these small islands, the Juan Fernandez Islands off of Chile, to feed up here in the North Pacific. And they've been doing a tagging study to look at exactly where they're going. And you can follow along online. So if you go to oikonos.org, that's O-I-K-O-N-O-S dot O-R-G, Right there on their homepage, there's a link where you can follow along, go to these maps, and see where the birds are. It took about a month for them to get to the United States from Chile. So these birds are booking, um, looking for food, coming in, coming on up to the California current. It's very exciting. Um, this is also National o- Ocean Month. In fact, this week is World Oceans Day on June 8th, and it's a time where um, both Our communities, as well as our government, really takes a look at our ocean. We have Oceans Week in D.C. happening, a lot of um, sessions with different nonprofits and special speakers talking about the importance of the ocean and the economy. This year they're focusing on clean energy um, in terms of ocean conservation. So that's pretty exciting. Um, Oceans Week is happening in Washington, D.C. this week. It's also the same month of Jacques Cousteau's birthday, as well as the anniversary of his his death. So an important person in the ocean conservation movement that we recognize in June. And lastly, I have an interesting factoid about the Titanic. 
Um, on May 31st, the what, the world's best-known shipwreck turned 100. On May 31st, this boat was launched out of Belfast, Northern Ireland in 1911. And this is what I found rather interesting, that Titanic became the catalyst for the development of international law on safety of navigation, including the International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea, as well as for the establishment of the International Maritime Organization, a United Nations agency that's responsible for the safety and security of shipping and prevention of marine pollution by ships. So just a little tidbit there of maritime history. I always think it's interesting to think about um, events like that that have stimulated different changes in how we look at things now. It's pretty important, all from this incredible ship that was uh, is very well known. Thanks for tuning in today to Ocean Currents. I'll be back live in the studio on in on August. In August, I don't remember which date it is right now. But my guest, this is very exciting, Curtis Ebbesmeyer. He is an oceanographer and avid beachcomber. And for those of you that may follow beachcombing stories, um, this is the oceanographer that studied the container ships that spilled Nike shoes and rubber duckies um, some years ago, and he mapped out where they landed and really used um, marine debris somewhat as an indicator and a way to study oceanography. So pretty interesting um, information that we'll be talking about in August with Curtis Ebbesmeyer. You've been listening to Ocean Currents. You can catch past shows on Cordell Bank. Uh, .noaa.gov on our podcast. If you click on the Tune into the Ocean link, it'll take you to all the past shows in, in, uh, that I've had here on Ocean Currents in the last five years. So thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.